saying that George Floyd, the George Floyd situation was bad is low-hanging fruit. You know, I, I think that's the baseline. If, if we can't agree that what happened there was horrible, then we're not operating from the same morals perspective. It's easy to say shooting a bunch of people in a mosque is bad. Like that, that doesn't take moral fortitude. That's not, you know, you're not getting a, a medal in courage for saying people shouldn't go in a mosque and kill people during prayer time, right? What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite podcast. As always, I am the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, uh, Noel Jesse Hakenin. And today is a little bit of a, uh, gosh, special seems like a weird word, but it, for me, it's like a special edition of this podcast. And But before I introduce the guest, I have to tell you a little bit of backstory. Um, it was a Sunday morning after our 1130 service at Riverview, the church where I serve as pastor. Um, and I plopped down next to uh, Joseph Harris. Now, now Joe it was at the time a professor at Michigan State, um, and I think he, he was studying diversity in children's literature, working on his PhD in that or in that genre. At least he was teaching on that. And the thing that terrified me about Joseph is that he live blogged my sermons. Um, didn't know anybody else who did anything like that. So he'd go on Facebook and he would say what he liked, what he hated. He would call it. It was it to going back and looking at it later in the day was one of the more terrifying things because this is a guy with a super insightful mind. And often when I would plop down on a chair next to Joseph, he would say something like, okay, I have a question. And that would be after we got the pleasantries out of the way, he'd hit the, I have a question. And it was usually a doozy. It was always insightful. Um, it often uh, took a passage of scripture that I was working through and asked the question that was two or three layers deep in the text that sometimes I had never even considered because of the perspective I was uh, coming from. And that day, when he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, like I always did. And he said, why didn't you talk about? And the about that he brought up was violence that had just happened to some black person in our culture. And I have racked my brain and I have tried to remember who it was and I couldn't remember. So I started searching this week through my old messages, looking for this message. Uh, I, I, I looked at the date around Michael Brown Ferguson. I looked around the date of Trayvon Martin. I looked around the date uh, of Freddie Gray, the date of Eric Gardner. And then I started to freak out at the number of times violence has happened to black men in our culture that I could not find the stinking date that Joseph and I had that conversation. There were so many. And my standard response to that question when it would come up about, I guess, anything would be, well, I let the text guide where I'm going. I'm preaching through passages and I don't like to jump. I don't want to be guided by the newspaper. I want to be guided by scripture. And, and, and Joseph's response was, yeah, but today your text was the perfect text. You could have gone there and you stepped out and you stepped around it and you didn't go there. And I remember how humbling it was to me that because of my white eyes, I didn't see the obvious connection between the text I was teaching. And again, I, I wish I could remember what the text was. Between the text I was teaching 
and what my brother and other folks in my church were going through that day. And that has always stuck with me. Now you rewind the tape to last week. My immediate reaction in this whole thing is I want to talk to Joseph. I wanted to go sit down next to him. I wanted to talk to him again, but there's a couple reasons I, I felt like I couldn't. The first is he moved. <laughs> the guy's not uh, in our church anymore. He's down in Indiana at DePaul University. Um, and the second thing is I just know black folks are tired. They're tired of talking to and explaining things to white folks like me. And yet Joseph was never tired of talking to me. So I wrestled with this. And then I finally, I shot him a note and said, you probably don't want to have this conversation, but can I record a conversation where we would have, like, if we were sitting down having sushi, which is what we would do. If we were having sushi and we were having this conversation, I want to have it with you. And, and, and are you okay with that? And his response was awesome. He said, Noel, this is literally my job now. My job is literally to explain diversity to white people because now he is at DePaul University as a coordinator uh, for the Center for Diversity and Inclusion uh, down there at that school. And so, Joseph, I'm part of me is so excited to see your face because we're, we're looking at each other on video while we're talking. And part of me just, it sucks that this is why we're talking. What I would love to do today is to have a conversation about how white folks should and shouldn't and can't, or where they should run headlong into conversations, where they should stick back. But I'd love for you to start by just telling folks how it is that you started going to the church where I serve as a pastor and why you stayed. Um, so it was, it was, I actually remember this. It was, it was, I was driving, uh, this is back when I, I lived over, I believe in Trapper's Cove. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a little, little apartment complex right behind Michigan. And there was like a commercial or, uh, it was like a commercial or like a little thing on, on like the radio. And it was like, Hey, do you like, do you like coffee? Do you have tattoos? Uh, you should go to church. And I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. How do those things go together? It was like this really random thing that sort of caught my ear, you know? And I was just like, I, I don't have tattoos, but I do like coffee, but it intrigued me. And it intrigued me enough where I sort of like listened to it. And then I um, I remember like Googling uh, like the, the name. I didn't have like the whole name because it went by so fast. But I remember like putting like coffee in church and like, and then um, I saw the Riv come up. And so I remember calling because it said it started at like 1130 ish you know or or 11 ish or 11 30 <laughs> right and, right right and i i call and i said hey what what does this what does this mean and they're like well you know ish you know we get there then maybe five or ten minutes later but we start when we start and i was like oh these are my people these are this person <laughs> yes this is i can do that and so um i came to check it out in the very first message i heard you you were preaching that day and I'll never forget it. The very first message that um, you taught on was how Christianity has been used historically around the world to oppress people, how Christians and haven't always been the best um, emissaries of Christ. And you gave a lot of different like historical examples. And I had never. So I got my undergraduate degree in history. And so I, I was aware of this, but I had never heard any pastors really go into that area, definitely not white pastors. You hear some um, black preachers sort of go into that area for necessity, but I hadn't heard too many white pastors sort of seemingly fearlessly dive into that subject. And it made me think, well, maybe something's here. 
And um, and after that, it, it was kind of, um, for, for lack of a better word, I just kind of felt tugged to stay there. Um, I felt like this was the place that I needed to be for a variety of reasons. And, um, and so I stayed and, uh, uh, and I stayed for a long time. It was, it was one of the, uh, a really good experience. It was a really good sense of community. Um, and uh, I met really great people through the life groups I was in. And I, and I just ended up really just staying there. And, and, and I know that you told me, and hopefully there's nothing off limits here. You, you've told me you got heat from some people for going to a church that was primarily, I mean, we are predominantly white. We have a desire um, to be multi-ethnic. We have a desire to be transcultural. We haven't always gotten that right. Mm-hmm. And, and yet we're predominantly white, especially at the venue that you attended. Um, and you got some heat for that. Talk about that and why you stuck around. So I think, um, I think it was heat, but it was also a lot of confusion. So um, my friends who know me know that I, I consider myself an activist. Um, I, that I consider um, that I consider myself to be someone who's really interested and invested in um, making uh, our communities better communities, especially for people who are traditionally underrepresented. Um, and that's run the gambit from phone banking and um, mentoring to um, frontline protesting. Um, so I think that some of my friends were surprised and curious about how I ended up at um, uh, a church that wasn't predominantly black. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, I think um, for a lot of black, black people, uh, the black church is not just like a spiritual place um, and a community place. But if you look at the history of civil rights in America, the black church has often been the headquarters for um, those types for the type of people that I want to engage in the type of work that I engage in, you know, um, it's one of the reasons when you, when you look at, uh, church bombings in the South, why churches were bombed, black churches were bombed. It was because they were headquarters for resistance. They were headquarters for, um, changing the status quo. They were headquarters and the places where people mobilized and strategized and thought about how to overturn, um, um, inequity. And so um, to be at a place that wasn't um, a primary black church, I think a lot of my friends were a little surprised and, and a little uh, confused. Um, and I, I, I told them I was surprised and confused too. <laughs> I, I didn't think that I would end up at, at a church that wasn't predominantly black, but it's one of those things where, um, and I don't know any other way to explain it and, and it not sound hokey, but I, I know some people feel like when they, when they, when they, um, when they profess their faith, they like hear like God talk to them. I've never felt like I've heard God. I've just feel really big tugs. You know, I feel really big sort of pulls and tugs. And I finally kind of felt that that same. T- and after a while, you start to recognize certain things. And I sort of recognize that same sort of tug for me to stay there. And um, and I, I think I was there uh, for a reason for for me and, and for some of the uh, community members that I met and the, and the connections that I made and. And the and the, uh, and the life groups and the people and the, and the just the way we were able just to coalesce and there's a lot of people I would have never met uh, if I hadn't been at Rib and so I think everything sort of happens for a reason even if those reasons sometimes you don't quite understand at the time. You know I think one of the reasons looking back was I as a recovering hypocrite, <laughs> um, uh, jacked up guy that I am, I needed you and I remember that day that I referenced right at the beginning sitting down next to you. And one of the comments that you made in our ensuing conversation, and I, I think we talked for a while, and I can't remember if we went and grabbed lunch that week, or uh, I don't remember when you said this, but 
during one of those conversations, you said, if I had been going to a black church, I know that this would have been talked about today, Mm -hmm. and I almost didn't come to church because I feared that you weren't going to talk about it, and you didn't. Mm -hmm. And I remember the tears streaming down your face as you said that, and I... So I think I needed that prophetic voice in my life uh, to kick me in the butt. And I, I think it needs to keep kicking me in the butt. I don't think I'm where I need to be yet in that. And so um, for pastors like me, um, who are white pastors of predominantly white churches, what would you say to white pastors about how to handle moments like these? knowing there's a minority in their church, if they're like ours, but a significant minority that's walking and hurting, wondering if their pastor's going to say something. What advice would you give? So I think, um, and once again, you know, like the idea that, you know, there, there is no monolith, right? And and I can give a snapshot and um, general expectations. But like I said, I think one of the things that, um, that, that a lot of Black folk are used to is the church being... Um, on the front lines of civil rights, their their black churches are generally, um, and not of course not every church, but the history of the black church is inseparable from the history of the civil rights movement, right? Um, uh, whether that whether you go back to Nat Turner or to Saint Louverture or Denmark Vesey or the AME Church, how it was founded, like, and, and, or, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and SCLC and the Freedom Right, like a lot of the interactions that we have, we don't have the modern civil rights movement without the church. So there is an expectation when we go to church to get comforted, especially when things happen around inequity. And when you go to a church and you, and you know that at, this church, there would be a level, a comforting happen, happening, and then you come to a church that's that's predominantly white or doesn't have a large minority uh, population, and that comfort doesn't happen. It feels like a loss. It feels like a slap. It feels like a rebuke. Like this isn't important enough for us to deal with, um, especially when you know going to another church it would. And so I would just, you know, I would hope that 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 pastors would just maybe think about that. Think about the role of the church in the lives of Black Americans and how the church has been um, a stalwart for um, um, uh, fighting inequity, you know? And I think for me personally, one of the things that, that you know, um, so I grew up, I grew up in, in the church and I grew up in, uh, my, my parents' church jumped. And so I experienced Black church and non-Black church. So I, I you know, I grew up on a, uh, Gospel Bill and 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 Carmen and DeGarmo and Key and, and all those <laughs> like, I, I know the <laughs> the things right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my first concert was Mylon Lefevre and Broken Hearts. So I'm age. Oh, get seven, out! Right, get out. And so, um, and so <laughs> I've been in churches where we weren't the majority, and with that, I know what church culture looks like on both sides, and I know what happens. So one of the biggest things I hear, it's almost like a buzzword, and I wrote about it the other day, it was like, I hear a lot of white pastors will say, you know, racism is, it isn't a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And it's almost become sort of like a catchphrase, but it's, it, to me, it feels like a catchphrase to really excuse sort of no action. Because 
having been in churches like all my life and having been in both uh, white churches and black churches, when Christians find a sin that they find problematic, they just don't pray it away. There is some sort of action that is involved with that. Um, whether that runs, I know churches that won't bury you if you engage in a certain type of sin. Churches who won't marry you if you engage in a certain type of sin, right? And so if racism is a sin problem, I want to see churches react to that in the same way they react to other so-called sin problems, right? I want to see the plan of action. I want to see not just the prayers, but What's going to happen? What politicians are you calling? What laws are you trying to get enacted? What kind of mobilization is happening? You know, churches will mobilize around homelessness. They'll mobilize around um, sexuality. They'll mobilize around a variety of other issues that they decide are important. But it seems like, you know, I told somebody, you know, just bluntly, if the church reacted to racism the same way they reacted to abortion or gay marriage, I don't think we'd have the same problems about racism. I never hear about anyone getting excommunicated from a church for being racist, right? I never hear about anyone being refused burial rights for being racist. And so I wonder about the level of, 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 of um, thought and importance that the church actually places race and racism behaviors um, and so that's one of the things I would I would like to see. I would like to see churches who who say that it's a sin problem treat it like a problem and not just treat it like a thing we need to pray away. What what's the action? What are the action things that are going to happen as a result of this being a sin problem? I think you're absolutely right. I think that was part of the reproof that I needed in my own head. That's the one that I think would have stuck out if I had sat down next to you after church. So Young Yi, who's our um, MSU venue director, who and he's the interim Rio Town venue director this summer, he wrote a blog post last week, and he shot me a note, and he said, um, I know I don't need it, but I'd love to have your permission to post my blog post, so I want you to read it before I send it. it was very, I think he was trying to be respectful, knowing, uh, so I said, okay. So I'm reading his, his blog post, which was fantastic, by the way, and I'll put it in the show notes, but one of the things he said this, his phrase he said was, and one thing I did not want to utter, this was to people who have asked him, what can I do to help? with their black brothers and sisters right now. He said, the one thing I did not want to utter was pray and point people to Jesus as a place to find hope. Those words and words alike have now been rendered unhelpful and useless. And he shot me that two days after I recorded my sermon for the weekend in which I said, quote, when others have pain, step into it and point them to Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And I realize that there can be statements that are loaded with a lot of biblical truth, but they become Mm -hmm. unhelpful and useless. Are there other ones Mm -hmm. that you're hearing folks use that— I I can't think of any off the top. It's the the sin problem, skin problem is the one that sticks out because I've heard it so often, you know? And I've I've heard it seemingly used— as a reason why not to engage like all we have to do is pray on this and this because it's because it's it's not a skin problem it's a sin problem we'll just we'll we'll pray it away i'm like that's good but i know churches who pray for homelessness and they also often they also do like right, drives. Right, they also right. also 
raise money. They also get backpacks together. People who, I know churches who pray for salvation, but they also send people on mission trips, right? right? right. They, the church plans, right. right? So this it's not just a prayer for these other things that people find the need for action for, Is but it seems like when it comes to racism um, and issues of inequity, it's often just this, oh, we'll pray about it. And that it disturbs me because it makes me think that um, that not only is there inaction, but it's willful. Like you, you it's almost seemingly deliberate. And I, and it makes me wonder, you know, I, I personally wonder, it's like, why? So is it that you don't want to upset um, parishioners? Is it that you don't want to, you know, wade into, you know, and it, it can't be you don't want to wade into dangerous waters because the church stays wading into lots of lots of dangerous waters. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, you know, and so I just it, I question, you know, and it makes me think and it's hard to come up with any other answer than um, willful inaction, you know, and I and I don't want to believe that. So it, it leads me to say, OK, so how can I not believe that? What are what are our especially, you know, um, if we're going to say that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. If we're truly brothers and sisters in Christ, then. What's going to happen is when I'm hurting, you're not going to make an excuse for why I need not be hurting so much. You're going to try to find a way to make me not mm-hmm. hurt, right? That's what you do for your brother. If my brother's in pain, I don't minimize his pain, you know? Um, and it feels like a lot of times, uh, especially black Christians, are asked to minimize their blackness to elevate their Christianity. Um. And that's not how it should be. Yeah, I think one of the I, one of the phrases that just kind of came to mind while you were talking too, is I think a lot of times people use the phrase "colorblind." Well, I'm colorblind, and 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 I think when that's said, it, it's meant to be like a trump card. Like, see, I don't see color. I'm colorblind, and yet saying that um, is saying that we are all supposed to be monocultural. And that means that from whatever perspective you're speaking from, everyone's supposed to be your, your culture. You, you brought a really good sort of um, thought about what people could do, you know. Yeah. And and one of the things that I, I tell people is that, you know, I think a lot of times the idea about being colorblind it also is a way to sort of let us off the hook in a way uh, that, you know, I don't see color. I don't see so these therefore problems. it's not my problem. Um, Somebody else is like that. Right. Yeah. It's, there's yeah. this really great article, I think it's by Zeus Leonardo, it's called The Myth of White Ignorance. And he talks about how one of the responses to dealing with um, issues around race because it makes us uncomfortable is sort of to step back and sort of say, well, I don't really know that much about race. I don't know much about these issues. I'm colorblind or I was raised in this kind of household and we focused on this. And But it's a myth because we, we actually do have a lot of thoughts you know, we have a lot of ideas. We have these things that we learn, whether we realize them or not, from a young age on up. And and I wish more people would sort of lean into that and say, hey, you know, I, I, I may think I don't know a lot, but I already have a lot of ideas and thoughts and, and things that are running through my mind, whether I realize them or not. And I think one of the, the biggest things, uh, the, one of the biggest ways I, I think people who want to be allies can be allies. So I taught a class at Michigan State um, called uh, Issues of Diversity in Children's Lit. Um, I was just, a, I was an instructor through grad school. I wasn't a professor, but I was an instructor. But um, one of the things the students would ask, and they, I'd have a lot of well-meaning white students from the western part of the state, um, and people who know Michigan know the western part is a little more 
um, uh, conservative, a little more religious, and they would say, you know, I want to go and I want to work in Chicago. I want to go. I really feel strongly about diversity. I want to go work in Detroit. I, I feel strongly about about um, inequity, and I want to go work in D.C. And I'd be like, that's great, but who's going to go back and talk to the other white people? Mm. I don't need you to come and talk to my kids and my kids' kids and 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 be you know a, a white savior, right? I don't I don't need that uh that that TV movie. What I need is for you to go talk to other white people who wouldn't listen. You know, white people who might look at me and say, hey, you know what? Um, here's this black guy. You know, he, he probably thinks this. He's probably that he might be politically on this side. I'm just going to discount what he has to say. But you have access to people who would never listen to me. And if you really feel strongly about issues of inequity and issues of race and you want to be an ally, Talk to your people, talk to your aunts, talk to your uncles, talk to your cousins. You know, there, there's the running joke about the racist uncle at Thanksgiving that everyone sort of ignores. Don't ignore him, right? Um, lean in, challenge him. Talk to your friends when they make those jokes. Challenge people's assumptions um, because they won't listen to me, you know? They'll listen to you, though. And so that's one of the things my, my admonishments are, you know, talk to you. If you want to be an ally, talk to people who look like you. Challenge them where they stand. My wrong perspective last week is for about two days, I felt paralyzed. So I said nothing. So for two days, I was just like, I almost felt like this is going to be a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation. If I say anything, I'm in trouble. If I don't say anything, I'm in trouble. And so instead, I did nothing. And I had inaction, which mm -hmm. was the wrong response. Um, mm -hmm. How do you engage with these issues on social media in a way um, that doesn't try to speak for black folks? but still highlights these issues. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, it seems like when people are talking, they're trying to talk for somebody else instead of, right. and I've no, I've, I've screwed that up. Yeah. I think the first thing to kind of understand is that, you know, back to this idea of, of, of black folks not being a monolith, that different people are going to have different needs and desires. Um, but I think the underlying, so everyone, not everyone is going to have similar strategies in how to deal with things. Right. And understanding that. And I think a lot of times where I see people getting in trouble is where they don't read the room, you know, where someone comes in and they want to um, drop an MLK quote out of context. You know, I, I wrote a few days ago, I was like, watch, we're going to have a bunch of people, you know, trying to drown us in MLK quotes um, who otherwise would never say anything about MLK. Right. Um, and so it's about, and it's from a short list that they can find on a website. Right. Right. You know, that, that, that I have a dream MLK, but they ignore the letters from a Birmingham jail or they ignore the King that says a riot is the language of the unheard. Right. They, 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 you know, ignore that King altogether. Um, and so, um, knowing one, how to read the room two, um, I think people are, are pretty, we understand that everyone's not going to get it right all the time. And I think uh, some people allow their fear of getting it wrong, paralyze them into inaction. And that fear of getting it wrong, allowing yourself to be paralyzed into inaction doesn't help anybody. Um, and so I would rather people say, hey, you know what? You know, I, I'll give you an example. So I, I, I blew up at my daughter the other day. I think part of it was like, pandemic cabin fever <laughs> part of it was right. she was being a kid at a time when i just needed five minutes to myself and you know i blew up a little too much and i said to her you know i said you know maybe like an hour later i said you know hey, baby daddy i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that i was wrong you know and it's something that i i wish my parents had done when i was younger when they were wrong 
You know, this this idea that, you know what, I'm sorry. And being sorry doesn't take away from my authority, doesn't take away from my parenthood, doesn't take away from my personhood. It's just an acknowledgement that in this case, I was wrong. And she's seven, so maybe she doesn't get it, but it's a good habit for me to get into, to, to be able to admit to my daughter, hey, you know what, I got this one wrong. And I think more people would be accepting of, you know, if a white person said, you know, hey, I, I got this one wrong. I wasn't, you know, I, I got that wrong, but I'm, I want to learn. And I, or I want to educate myself, or I want to do better. And I think a lot of times we allow this, this the, the fear of getting something wrong to paralyze. I don't know if we allow it to, or we allow it to be the excuse that paralyzes us into inaction. You and I have had political conversations before, and you know that my, my posture when it comes to politics is that if I'm doing it right, everybody thinks I agree with them. Um, because as, as, as a, a pastor, it's it just, it's just my conviction that I stay apolitical, um, from a public perspective. Mm-hmm. And so that I can be all about King Jesus and our citizenship in heaven, knowing that it has ramifications here. And so that means that there are times that people leave our church because they think I'm too conservative. And there's people who leave our church because mm-hmm. they think I'm too liberal. There's people who have left our church because they think I talk about race issues too much. And there's people who've left because I haven't talked about race issues enough. And so if I, mm-hmm. in my mind, if I get it right, I'm doing those two things. But in mm-hmm. a climate where it just seems like civil rights issues, uh, you know, the issues of violence against uh, black men and women, really, uh, Breonna Taylor, just um, it seems to be drawn across political lines. How does one Mm -hmm. speak to that? Like talk to pastors like me who are trying to thread that political needle. And I know you and I may not agree that I should do that. And we've had some of these conversations, but talk to that, a person like me, a pastor like that. I know, you know, it's, it's, that one's a tough one because for me, I'm confused, right? Um, I'm I'm really confused just from from a politics point of view. Um, one of one of the things that 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 gave me one of the biggest bouts of anxiety ever was um, walking into rib. I think like the election, the day, the, the Sunday after the election, right? And knowing that seventy percent of white evangelicals had voted for somebody that I I think deep down is a racist, and and trying to find a way to juggle that in my head and trying to find a way to be like, and it's, it's, it's confusing to me. I don't, I don't understand it. I, I, I get, so some people are like single issue voters. And if, 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 if you feel like abortion is the one true thing that all Christians need to be focused on and that's it, I may not agree with you, but I, I, I understand it, but there's a lot of people who just seem to just, who have, who have decided that Trump is their avatar. And it, it almost feels to me, if I'm totally honest, it feels like idol worship. And, I, and I, I can't explain it any other way than it feels like idol worship, regardless of what what kind of divisiveness that, um, that he or may others may bring in terms of race, that as long as we can justify it by, with someone else, that, it, that it's all okay. I... I, I, I can't understand how Christians look at some of the racism that happens and either excuse it or ignore it. And I think both of them are problematic to me. You know, I had, I I told somebody that, you know, I I don't believe that everybody who voted for Trump is racist. I don't, I don't believe that. 
But I do believe that a lot of people have decided to excuse some of the obvious racism for a variety of reasons, and that hurts. Because it goes back to that idea that I talked about earlier that race isn't that important. These other social issues that we've ranked, like the, the Christian hierarchy, you know, I, you know, and we all do it. Like I, I've been to churches who were like, you know, you, you can't play any cards but Uno, you know, or, you know, you can't wear jeans or, you know, you, you got to wear a suit mm-hmm. to church because that means mm-hmm. you're a Christian. We all yep. know churches that have certain Christian cultural hierarchies of what's important. And when people deliberately ignore or excuse racism, um, it makes me feel like the issues that affect me on a daily basis aren't that important, you know? And that and that and that's and that's problematic, especially if we're gonna call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. So is it enough to speak against racism, to speak against whatever let's just say just racism without naming names? Um I think it depends on so so here's the other thing. Um I, for me personally politically how i feel about my spiritual life i think trump is problematic i don't think trump is the problem right i I don't i don't think that any one person is the problem right what what's the quote that you know we we, the principalities and powers of darkness they're structural issues that precede any Mm -hmm. one person right right um there are structural issues that you know um there were there were um structural issues that that caused police brutality under President Obama, under President Clinton, under President Bush, under the other Bush, right? There are structural issues that need to be addressed that are going to need to be addressed regardless of who's in office. And that's one of the problems I think that happened is that when we elected Barack Obama, I think a lot of us had a collective sigh and said, whoa, I'm glad racism's over. We solved that. <laughs> right? And like, we, we, I heard the term post-racial society, right? I heard a lot of people say, hey, it's, it's over. We got a black man president. Racism is over. We've got us on its last legs. It, it ran into this idea of ignoring the structural issues and hoping that one person or one event could cause change. And you can't rely on one person to change something that's a structural issue, right? And so... I think there are times when calling out an individual who is engaging in reckless behavior is helpful. And there are times when some people try to use an individual as a, uh, as a burnt offering. I'm going to put all of our sins, all of our collective sins of the entire nation of Israel on this sheep. And now we've killed the sheep, so we are sinless. And, and I think there are some people who want to put all of our racial issues on politician A, whether it's Trump or whether it was uh, Strong Thurmond or Bull Connor or whoever other individual um, politician that you want to name, all of our racial issues deal are, are because of that person. And once we vote that person out, once we take care of that person, we'll be fine as a society. And that's not the facts of the matter. We have a lot of unwinding to do. And I think a lot of it starts in the church. I think a lot of us have to um, unwind some of our ideas and think about how is it that we have one section of the church that is totally committed to civil rights. And we have another section of the church that doesn't seem maybe not committed, 
at times that that's apathetic. And what do we do with those two things, right? We, we want to say we're one church, we're one body, but sometimes, especially when there's issues of race and racism and in, inequity, it doesn't feel like we're one body. And so that's why I say at yes, times sir. I think it's helpful and at times I think it can be, um, you know, the, the, the uh, Kansas City shuffle. The, oh, don't, don't, yeah, yeah. don't look at yeah, the yeah. structural racism. Look at that one guy right there doing that bad thing. Well, it's interesting, even just look at that one guy, but also the way we think as individuals in our culture, we tend to assign ourselves ourselves as just slightly better than the curve. You know, all of us think we're slightly better than average intelligence, slightly mm-hmm. kinder, slightly better looking, you know, all <laughs> slightly more patient than the average person. We yeah. think all yeah. this, and then we are so individualistic in our culture, we don't think collectively. And I, there, I read an interesting book uh, this last year called um, Mis, uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western mm-hmm. Eyes. And f- and it talked about our very Western individualistic view causes us to miss all the we language in mm-hmm. Scripture. And so I started reading a new book. I'm only a little bit of the way into it on reading the book of Romans through Eastern eyes. And it's interesting because I think that most of us, especially conservative, uh, and by conservative, I mean theologically right, 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 conservative. Right. So so not politically conservative, but theologically conservative uh, readers of scripture, we read Romans very individualistic. It's about my sin, my sin going to Jesus, my need for salvation. And this guy's pointing out that Romans is really read collectively. Mm. It's written collectively. And I don't think we're going to get to understanding systemic racism until we can start thinking we instead of mm-hmm. I and we instead right. of you. It, it, it's not going to happen until we do that. I think, and that's part of the reason I think we're seeing some of these protests now, right? Is because people don't see answers. Um, and so they're trying to figure out the best way to get their their voices heard. Um, and 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 I, you know, one of the examples I use for that is that you know um, I've been hearing. Uh, I, I would I personally would love to see a Venn diagram of the people right now who are saying we have to only engage in peaceful protests. Peaceful protest is the only legitimate form of protest. Um, and, and anything that engages in non peaceful protest needs to be ignored. Um, and disqualified, um, and I'd like to see a Venn diagram of those people and what they thought about um, uh, uh, Kaepernick. Exactly. Because Kaepernick engaged, th- there, I can't think of anything more peaceful than one person taking a knee on TV away from everyone else. And collectively, um, the country went ballistic over that, you know? Um, from politicians down to owners down to, you know, individuals who I knew, you know, um, and, and intentionally sort of made it into something it wasn't. So one of the things we have to do is decide, you know, how do, do we actually care about this thing? Or are we looking for ways to ignore the problem? Because what, what people collectively did with Kaepernick is they decided that it was an insult to the troops so we could ignore it. Right. And so instead of dealing with the problem individually or collectively, we try to destroy the messenger. And now that people are engaging in non uh, and and violent and some in some instances, violent protests, um, 
they're saying, well, why didn't you engage in peaceful protests? And and I point and I say, but they did. We did. We did engage right. in peaceful protests. Right. Protest, <laughs> I think, and, and I actually wrote a, a, a mini sort of rant about this the other day. I think a lot of people, they don't want protests. They want to see performance. They want to see black people politely wear suits and sing We Shall Overcome and walk down the street. And that's not protest in 2020. That's performance. Protest. King wrote that what he was trying to do was he was trying to cause a tension, a nonviolent tension. And that's what protest is designed to do. It's designed to cause a tension. And in that tension and agitation, things can can get clean. Like if, if you think uh, the example I like to give is if I put clothes in a washing machine and just sit them there and look at them, <laughs> you know, it's the, the agitation of the cycle that causes the dirt and grime to get exposed and wiped away. And without that agitation, we can't collectively get clean. But what we want is an agitationless, attentionless protest, which at that point becomes performance. And so until we can get to the point where we can at least admit some of these things to ourselves, I don't know if we can go further. Like, how how can you say you want nonviolent protests when you destroy all the nonviolent protests? Part of me over the last couple of days has thought that this thing feels a little different with, you know, cops kneeling, cops joining the the protesters, you know, the Genesee County mm-hmm. Sheriff uh, putting down his baton and taking his stuff off and walking. It feels different. I don't know if I am just historically ignorant and it's not different, if that sort of thing has happened mm-hmm. in the past, or if that's just performance. How, how I'm going to see if it feels different is not in the, the cycle of today and tomorrow, but in the action or inaction of next week. What's happening right now is that people are, um, the protesters are responding in anger and fear and, and, and just righteous fury in some cases of seeing a man literally have the life choked out of him. Um, and for some of us, we're, we're tired of seeing like, at, at a certain point, I feel like black lives have become snuff films um, because we're seeing so much of it on TV that, we're be, that some of us are becoming desensitized to it. And so I think you're seeing a reaction to that. So I think in some cases, I think there are some uh, politicians and police officers who are genuinely moved by that, who are genuinely moved by this. But I, I often, I also caution with that. I think, I think George Floyd saying that George Floyd, the George Floyd situation was bad is low hanging fruit. You know, I, I think that's the baseline. If if we can't agree that what happened there was horrible, then we're not operating from the same morals perspective. So I think that's what you're seeing more um, police officers and politicians coming out the gate and saying, this is wrong. But what I'm more concerned about is the 10 years of stuff that happened before that, that allowed that person to think that his behavior was okay, right? He was around other police officers and he knew he was being filmed and he thought nothing of it. So to me, that leads to a, what what allowed him to think that that was going to be okay and that was going to be all right, right? So George, this this individual instance and the reaction to it is important because it was a tragedy and it shouldn't have happened like that. But once again, are we going to look at this individual tragedy without looking at any of the other prerequisites that caused it, right? It's easy, you know, um, I, I was asked... Um, 
um, a, 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 a local uh, a, a, a local Muslim imam asked me to speak this past year um, at a gathering at the school because um, um, uh, after what happened in uh, New Zealand, and he just you know he asked me to speak on behalf of the NAACP. I'm, I'm actually I'm the vice president of the NAACP chapter down here, and so I spoke. And one of the things I said was, it's easy to say shooting a bunch of people in a mosque is bad. Like that that doesn't take moral fortitude. That's not you know, you're not getting a, a medal in courage for saying people shouldn't go in a mosque and kill people during prayer time, right? It's not a profound courage to say Charleston was bad. It's not a profound courage to speak up and say, yes, Dylan Roof shouldn't have gone into a church doing prayer service and shot a bunch of people. It's not hard to do that. What I'm looking for is for people to, to speak up against the things that lead up to those steps, you know? Um, one of the examples I give is um, the first time I, I came to a church down here, I looked for a new church home when I moved down here. And one of the first churches I went to, I drove, I, I, I go to churches by myself to see how they are first. Um, and then I, I have my family come. So I went to the church by myself. And the first thing I saw when I came in the parking lot was a truck with a big Confederate flag. on. And so I, I almost didn't go into church because it, it vexed me so much. I went to the church and, and the, sermon that day was a really good sermon about how we're brothers and sisters and we should all love each other. And I was just like, the, the, the discrepancy between seeing that and, 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 and hearing that. And so I, I did what I, I normally do. I, I you know, I, I, um, when, when I'm, and I'm sure other black people have dealt with this when I'm, when I'm the, one of the few black people in the church and I'm testing it out, uh, a lot of people want to come and shake my hand and, and say, Hey, how are you doing? And, you know, come back. And uh, the pastor said, hey, how you doing? I'd love for you to come back. And I was like, you know, I, I, I don't think I can. And he said, why? I said, well, there's a, there's a, there's a truck with a Confederate flag out. And I don't know if I want to bring my kids here. You know, I, I don't know if I can bring my, I don't know if it's safe for my family. And I, and I think, you know, he's like, well, I don't know if it's one of my parishioners that could have been a visitor. And I said, you know, I understand all that. My problem is he felt comfortable enough to drive to that church. And part, I like hip hop. I wouldn't drive up to Riverview blasting Dr. Dre, right? Because I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it, right? To me, there's a certain amount of respect driving into a church place that I just, I wouldn't do, right? Um, but he felt comfortable enough to drive onto church property with a Confederate flag thinking that no one would check him for it. So what are the... Here's the problem, yes, but what are the root causes that leads people to think that this is okay and all right to do? So yes, uh, to make a long story long, because I'm meandering a bit, um, yes, I think that there are some things that are different, but the immediate things that happen as a result of violence and violent protests, a lot of that is band-aid. What can I do to keep these people right here from burning my city the way they burned that city, right? So I have to give them my baton. If I have to kneel, if I have to genuflect and humble myself to these people to keep them from burning my city, that's what I'll do. And I think that's a good thing. But what's going to happen on Monday and Tuesday and next week and next month and next year? Is that same thing going to happen? And so that's what I'm interested in seeing. Mm -hmm. What kind of long-term solutions are going to happen as a result? What kind of long-term changes are going to happen as a result of this? I kind of sort of want to just leave it hanging right at this note because I think you and I could talk for another hour. And so I just want to encourage everybody out there, um, just uh, take a lot of this to heart and go back and re-listen to this. And if you disagree with some of this, let it sit and simmer with you 
for a while without quickly writing it off or explaining it away or ignoring it. Just let it marinate. There might be some gospel truth in something you heard today that you immediately thought you didn't want to hear. Joseph, it was my joy and, again, weird circumstances, but a joy to see your face and to be able to talk to you again, brother. I, I appreciate, you know, just sitting down and talking with you. And, um, you know, I, I just want to say generally, if any, I, I'm the type of person, if anybody does have questions, if anyone does have comments, um, I, I don't mind fielding them. I don't think it's every black person's job to explain this type of stuff, but I, I don't mind. I, I, I am happy to take questions or comments or concerns. And so, you know, if, if, if we want to link like a Facebook or, or, or something like that, so people, if they have questions or, or comments, I, I don't mind taking them. So I will link to your Facebook page and it is literally your job to answer these questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In many cases it is. <laughs> All right. Well, good to see you, brother. Good to see you too.